1986, Phillip Island, Australia was shocked by the brutal murder of one woman and the disappearance of another. The two women were linked to the same man. But was this a case of a victim and a killer on the run, or were both women victims? I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines. This week's podcast episode was recommended by Luca, so thank you so much for sending it in. The best way to get case suggestions to me is to email them to crimelinespodcast at gmail.com. I try to get them from social media and YouTube comments, but a lot of times I miss them. Email, I will not miss it. When people send in case suggestions, I usually pretty much right away look up a synopsis of the case just to see if it would be a good fit for Crime Lines. Is there enough information out there? The usual vetting of a topic. And I walked away from the synopsis to this case completely confused. So naturally, I had no choice but to cover it because I had to figure this out. But unfortunately, I don't think that I did. But I'm going to take you along on this journey with me because I think there are some important things to think about with this case, particularly with the idea of casting blame. This won't be my longest episode, but it's definitely one that probably top five to ten in how much time it took me to sort through the timelines and witness statements. I will shout out two of the main sources for this podcast episode. One was the book, The Phillip Island Murder, by Vicki Pietras and Paul Daly. The other is a television program that covered the case. It is called Sensing Murder, and Sensing Murder does use psychics in their show, but I'm not going to cover that information. The show is free on YouTube. This episode is called The Scarlet Letter if you want to see that aspect of it for yourself. But they did have firsthand interviews with investigators and people close to the case. They covered most of it in the first half of the program, so that is the information that I have used here. All of my sources are linked in the description box if you're ever curious where my information comes from. In this case, we have an official story that might be correct, but it has some pretty big holes in it. Even one of the original investigators doesn't think the official story is the right one. We will cover that official story first, and then we will stick our head in those giant holes left behind and just take a look around. We are starting with a well-respected family, the Camerons, who lived and worked on Phillip Island. This island is south of Melbourne, Victoria. It is connected to the mainland by a bridge called the San Remo Bridge, and this is a very tight-knit and some might describe as insular community. The Cameron family had three grown children, two sons, Don and Fergus, and a daughter named Marnie. They all owned and managed a successful family farm together, and their houses were all on the same street. In 1976, 26-year-old Fergus Cameron married 25-year-old Vivian. The two went on to have two sons together, born in 78 and 81. Their marriage had some pretty serious sore spots, particularly with communication. 
When problems would come up, they couldn't talk them through, so resentment built. But divorce never seemed to be on the table for either of them over the first decade of their marriage. The extended Cameron family was all incredibly close, so Vivian and the in-laws got along really well. They were close friends as well as relatives. Everyone worked on the family farm, some of them full-time, some part-time, as they would have jobs elsewhere. An outside job that Fergus had was at a penguin preserve known as the Phillip Island Penguin Parade. You seriously get to go watch a colony of penguins do their thing, and if you've ever been there before, please send me pictures. Thank you. So Fergus worked there starting in 1978. In 1984, a 21-year-old woman named Beth Barnard started working there as well. Beth's family had a house on the island, and she grew up the middle of five children. She loved animals and nature, so the Penguin Parade was the best spot for her to work. She met Fergus, who was 13 years her senior, through their work at the preserve, and he offered her a job working on the Cameron family farm in April 1985. Beth happily took the job, juggling both the work as a farmhand and her work at the preserve. About a month after Beth started working for the family, she hosted a party for the employees from the Penguin Parade. No one showed up except for Fergus, and the two spent hours talking. One thing led to another, and they slept together. Both Fergus and Beth seemed to approach it as a one-time thing at first, a bit of a mistake. Having an affair was not in their value systems. But then they saw each other again, and then again, and they would both try to call it off here and there, but they were never away from each other for long before they would get back together. Beth told friends that she really struggled because she didn't see a future with Fergus, even though she had fallen in love with him. The only way she could have a life with him would be for him to get a divorce. And Beth worried what that would mean for his sons. There was just no way to move forward without hurting his boys, and she just couldn't do that. At 21, Beth had never had a serious boyfriend before. She loved Fergus, and as much as she wanted to break things off for the sake of his kids and his wife and just her own ability to move on, she also very much wanted to be with him. And as long as Vivian didn't find out, it seemed like Fergus could have it both ways, though he also expressed later that he was torn over the entire situation. The illusion that Fergus could have his wife and children and his girlfriend at the same time was almost destroyed for the first time in December 1985. This is according to something Beth told her friends. Vivian walked in while Fergus was hugging Beth, and it was clearly a very friendly embrace. Vivian asked Fergus at that point if he was cheating, and he denied it. He insisted that he and Beth were just very good friends. This confrontation was almost too much for Beth. 
she decided it was time to end things as cleanly as she could. She quit her job at the Cameron family farm, and she gave notice at the Penguin Parade. She started to make plans to leave the island and find work elsewhere. Just get away. But soon enough, Fergus talked her into staying. He gave her her farm job back, and when she took back her notice at the Penguin Parade, they were okay with that. Things just continued as they had been. However, you can't unring a bell. And Vivian saw what she saw. She was growing more and more suspicious of Fergus cheating and even expressed it to friends and family. And even if there was no affair, the marriage was in trouble. In May 1986, Vivian asked Fergus to go see a marriage counselor, and he said no because he didn't see what good it would do. Vivian then tried to get him to quit his job at the Penguin Parade, since they could make do without the extra income. This would mean more time with the family, which I'm sure Vivian was also thinking it meant less time with Beth. Fergus said no to this as well. Vivian started then noticeably losing weight, which she told a friend was an effort to save her marriage. It could also be a side effect of the mental distress she felt. At one point, she called the Lifeline number, which is a crisis hotline. I can only imagine how Vivian felt at this point. She wanted to save her marriage, but she had a partner who didn't want to meet her halfway or even a tenth of the way. He did not seem to be invested in saving the marriage. In August 1986, Vivian demanded that Fergus do his part to work on their marriage or what she perceived as his part. Fergus again said no. It seems at this point he was ready to start making the actual moves for them to separate. But he wasn't quite ready to pull the plug yet, so the two more or less ended up in a ceasefire for the next several weeks cordial, day-to-day functional relationship, but not warm and loving and not working on the marriage. And in this time, Fergus did continue to see Beth. On Sunday, September 21st, 36-year-old Fergus Cameron went to 23-year-old Beth Barnard's house. She was living in her parents' home on the island, but they were in Melbourne at the time. Normally, Fergus wouldn't come by when her parents were there, but since they were in Melbourne, he did. Fergus said Beth seemed a little bit down. For one, she was actually sick at the time physically. She had been diagnosed with a pretty bad sinus infection. But Beth was also feeling pretty down about her relationship with Fergus. She was looking at taking some time to stay with her brother in Melbourne to get some space from Fergus and the island and the whole situation so that she could clear her head and get some idea of what she wanted in the future. This was not unlike the other times they had tried to stay away from each other before. That night on the 21st, Fergus did stay with Beth for a few hours They did have sex, and then he went home to his wife. On Monday, September 22nd, Fergus checked in on Beth in the morning around 8.30 to see how she was. She said she still didn't feel better, 
and he said he'd call her later. Beth then talked to her friend Marie on the phone, and the two got together later in the morning. Beth had told Marie that she was going to see Fergus that evening and tell him that if he wanted to stay with Vivian, it was time he essentially let her move on. It was time for a decision. Beth left Marie's house in the early afternoon and headed back to her house. At 8 p.m. that evening, Fergus drove out to Beth's house. A neighbor backed this up, having seen headlights around that time. And the reason the neighbor noticed this vehicle was because the way it came down the street, she first thought it was about to pull into her driveway, which is why she was looking out. Instead, they pulled into Beth's. She did say that the car sat with the headlights on for several minutes before they turned off. But because of the trees between her property and Beth's, she couldn't really see much beyond that. While Fergus was with Beth and unbeknownst to him, his sister Marnie was looking for him to discuss some business issue. She called the Penguin Preserve around 8 or 8.15, and they told her that Fergus had already left. So Marnie went over to his house to see him and found that he wasn't home either. But Vivian was, and now she's hearing that her husband left work when she thought he was still there. Vivian poured herself a glass of wine while she and Marnie waited for Fergus to get home. Fergus left Beth's house around 9 p.m., and he told her he would see her in the morning, though Beth told him she may be leaving late that night or possibly early the next morning for Melbourne to stay with her family. But Fergus later said he expected Beth would wait to leave until the morning so he would go and say goodbye then. When Fergus got home, it was between 9.10 and 9.20. He walked in to his sister probably looking pretty uncomfortable and his wife sipping wine and not looking too happy either. It had taken him well over an hour to supposedly drive the 10 to 15 minutes home after work. But right when Fergus came in, the phone rang, and he took that call for about 20 minutes, which was delaying the inevitable conversation. When he hung up, Marnie talked to him about whatever it was she was there for, and then she left around 9.45. Once Marnie left, Vivian and Fergus got into it over where he had been. He said he had gone to Beth's, but he just went there to talk to her, which actually sent Vivian into an even bigger rage, according to Fergus. She took the wine glass she had in her hand and she smashed it against the side of his head. The glass broke and cut his ear. Fergus turned away from her, and Vivian then hit him with the broken glass on his back. Except this was a sharp, broken glass. Hitting him was really stabbing him. Fergus ended up with three puncture wounds from the glass, and he was bleeding from both his ear and his back. Fergus went upstairs to deal with his injuries, and Vivian followed him, still arguing with him about Beth. But when she realized how injured Fergus was, she insisted he go to the hospital because it looked like he needed stitches. And he did. 
So Fergus's sister Marnie had barely gotten back to her house when Vivian called her and asked her to come back. She said there had been a fight, Fergus was hurt, and they needed someone to come stay with their boys who were asleep at this point. Vivian was with Fergus at the hospital getting him seen by the doctor. Marnie and her husband Ian went over to the house and Fergus and Vivian were already at the hospital. They were surprised to see blood in the house even though they knew Fergus had been injured. Maybe it wasn't just that there was some blood, but how much blood? They saw some near the broken wine glass, but also some up in a spare bedroom. Marnie grabbed a broom and swept up the broken glass so no one could step on it, and she threw it away. Ian ended up heading home while Marnie stayed in the house and waited for Vivian and Fergus to get back. At the hospital, Fergus was numbed up and getting his stitches. The doctor checked in with him, asking if it hurt. Fergus said no, and Vivian replied, well, you're luckier than I am. That response wasn't exactly what the doctor expected, since Vivian appeared to be completely uninjured and certainly hadn't made any complaint about pain. But I personally think Vivian meant emotional pain. Her marriage of 11 years was crumbling in front of her, a marriage she regularly asked her husband to work on. Instead, he was carrying on an affair with a much younger woman. In that exact moment of Fergus saying he wasn't feeling pain, you can almost see why Vivian thought now's a good time to pipe up and point out the pain she was experiencing, even if it wasn't physical pain. After Fergus was stitched up, the doctor was ready to discharge him, but Vivian asked about Fergus spending the night in the hospital so he could recover a bit. Fergus didn't want to, and the doctor said it really wouldn't be necessary, so he sent Fergus home with the usual wound care follow-up instructions. They left the hospital around 12.30 a.m. When they got home, Marnie was there, and she talked with both Fergus and Vivian. They decided it would be best for Fergus to spend the next few nights at Marnie's house. He could rest and heal, and everyone could get some space. Marnie went ahead and headed home with Vivian saying she would drive Fergus over after he packed his bag. According to Fergus, he and Vivian talked a bit more and came to the mutual decision that divorce was their next step. Vivian would go stay with her parents about two hours away in the Melbourne area, and the boys would stay in the family home with Fergus. According to Fergus, Vivian said some comment about how she wasn't a good mother and then said something about not taking it for granted that Beth would be. And this comment did strike me as pretty odd at first, but then I'm wondering if maybe it was just a parting shot at Fergus rather than actual concern for Beth's role in their boys' lives. So Fergus packed his bag, and Vivian dropped him off at Marnie's with the plans for the two of them to talk again in the morning. 
Fergus stayed up a bit with Marnie, telling her about the fight and how the marriage was over. It wasn't until about 3 a.m. that they went to bed. Then in the morning, and I mean daylight morning, not 3 a.m. morning, but in the morning, the phone rang at Fergus's brother Don's house. I know, it's a lot of names. The call came in about 7.45. On the line was an old family friend named Robin. She said that she had Fergus and Vivian's sons with her, and she couldn't get in touch with either Fergus or Vivian to pick them up so that she could go to work. She ended up sending the older son on the school bus with her kids, but she still had the younger one with her. Don and his wife Pam had no idea what was going on. Robin told them that Vivian had called her at 3 a.m. saying there had been an emergency and she had to take Fergus to the hospital. She asked Robin to come and get the boys from the house and take them back to her house for the night. So she did, thinking she was helping out in an emergency, but she didn't know what she was supposed to do next. When Robin had picked the kids up, Vivian and Fergus weren't there, but Vivian had left her purse behind. So Robin figured it was a pretty serious emergency for them to have rushed out of the house like that. Don told Robin he'd come pick up the younger son and they would figure it out from there. On his way to Robin's house, he drove by Fergus's house. Again, they lived on the same street. He didn't really have to go out of his way. And he noticed that the family car was in the driveway, which seemed a little odd because if Vivian wasn't home, that's the car she would have taken. So the next bit we're going to go over is a little bit of a mess. It's who called whom. Not everyone remembered the phone calls exactly the same way. So we're just going to do the best we can. After Don got home with the younger son, his wife, Pam, called over to Marnie's house to see if she knew what was going on. And when she called Marnie's house, Fergus answered the phone. He seemed upset, so then Ian, Marnie's husband, took the phone and told Pam something had happened, meaning the fight from the night before, and that he would call her back later to explain. But Pam had Fergus's son at her house, and they couldn't reach Vivian, so she wanted to know what was going on now. So everyone got caught up to speed on where the son was, where Fergus was, who went to the hospital, and all of that. The thing that stood out, though, was that Vivian had told Robin that she was taking Fergus to the hospital at 3 a.m., which was two and a half hours after Fergus had been discharged from the hospital. And that wasn't the only odd part of all these happenings that morning. Ian noticed that the farm truck, which was a flatbed land cruiser, was missing. He thought that maybe Vivian had used it to take her son to the bus stop, but then he learned Robin had taken him to the bus stop. So where was Vivian and where was the truck? It was all very confusing to everyone except Fergus. Now, I'm not saying it wasn't confusing for Fergus, but it was more upsetting than confusing. He said he was really worried that something bad had happened. He asked if Don and Ian would go to Beth's house to check on her. He was, according to him, genuinely worried that this 3 a.m. come get the boys was because Vivian went to Beth's house and something may have happened. 
They agreed to go, and Don drove down the street to Ian's house to pick him up, and when he got there, he noticed that Fergus looked agitated. The two men decided to go ahead and stop at Fergus and Vivian's house first. I'm not entirely sure why. Maybe they thought, what if Vivian's just depressed and drank too much the night before and just was sleeping through all of this? But when they got to the house, again, the family car was there, no sign of Vivian. The two men then continued to Beth's home. Though it was daytime, they noticed that the porch light was still on. The back door was open a few inches. One of the men walked in, and in the bedroom nearest to the door, he saw Beth lying on the floor on her back. There was blood pooled around her. She was also covered with a quilt up to her nose. The one who went in called the other one in, and then they both backed out of the house and drove to the police station to report it. They said there had been a domestic incident at Beth Barnard's house and that she wasn't okay. When the police got to the house, they saw that Beth Barnard was, in fact, not nearly okay. Her body was lying with her head near her bedroom door, and the blood around her had congealed a bit. The officer pulled the quilt a little bit back and saw that she had a severe injury, which would turn out to be a stab wound, to her mouth, and her throat had been cut. This officer, confirming that Beth was not alive and was beyond help, backed out of the home and waited on the investigators to arrive to process the scene. They soon came and noticed a few things right off the bat themselves. One was that there were cigarette butts around, but Beth wasn't a smoker. And while her room was messy, it was like a normal amount of messy. Not dirty, not like she wouldn't have swept up cigarette butts that were on the ground. There was also a bloody knife with a wood handle nearby, initially believed to be the murder weapon. However, that is up for debate. There may have been another knife used or used in addition to this one. Beth had a pattern of cuts that looked like two cuts right next to each other, something that this knife wouldn't be able to make. So picture something more like a tomato knife or a bread knife that has the double prongs at the tip. That's what the cuts looked like to me. Another possibility brought up is that this was a knife with side wings, like a sigh, that was used at an angle. That would have made two puncture wounds side by side like this. But none of that would be obvious until they got Beth into autopsy and her clothes processed. Before they got to that point, while still at the scene, they did pull the quilt off of Beth entirely, and then they saw the full extent of her wounds. They also documented a lot of blood smears on her body, too many to be incidental. It looked like someone had done this on purpose, either wiping their hands off on Beth's body or rubbed their hands on her after having stabbed her. Beth did have defensive wounds on her arms and hands, though there weren't any other signs of a major struggle in the room items on shelves, and even a glass of water hadn't been knocked over. And that was probably because Beth was attacked in her bed, and she very well could have been asleep, 
when the attack began. There was a lot of blood on her bed and a bloody handprint on the wall nearby, which turned out to be Beth's. It's believed Beth woke up right as the attack began and tried to fight back. She held up her hands and arms to block her killer from stabbing her while she attempted to get out her bedroom door. There was a defensive wound to Beth's ankle, which led investigators to believe that she was likely still fighting while she was on the ground, kicking her attacker until they ended her life with a cut to her throat. The struggle would have been brief, though intense and incredibly violent, as Beth fought for her life. But this wasn't the last of the injuries. There was a post-mortem attack on the body that was very deliberate and rather shocking. When the investigators had pulled that quilt all the way back, they saw that an A was carved into Beth's torso. An A can be a symbol of anarchy, but in this case, the investigators believed it was referring to adultery and comes from the novel The Scarlet Letter. This is a classic, and even if you haven't read it, you probably get the reference to it if you consume enough media in English because it is referenced so much. The basic story is about a young woman named Hester who became pregnant by someone other than her husband in puritanical colonial Massachusetts. It's set in the 1700s. She was persecuted for this. She was ordered to wear a scarlet A embroidered onto her clothes for the rest of her life while she raised her child in social exile. Hester refused to name the father of her child, which saved him from the public humiliation and scorn she had endured. At the end, the father of the child, who turned out to be a well-respected and loved minister, confessed and revealed that he had carved an A into his skin on his chest years before. The point is to show the juxtaposition between public embarrassment Hester endured and the private shame of the minister. He carried it all the same as she did, but because he hid it, society treated him differently. But boiled down to the most basic plot point, the A is a symbol for adultery, and the police were told by Don and Ian that Fergus had been having a relationship with the victim, so that seemed to be the likely meaning. This A wasn't just the three cuts needed to form an A. These were deep, And each section of the A had multiple slashes. One had four cuts, one had five, and one had ten. In processing the rest of the house, they found that the killer had gone into the bathroom. Blood was found on the taps, giving an indication the killer had washed up. There was a cigarette found in the bathroom as well, and it was found in an otherwise clean and empty ashtray. This cigarette and the others gave the investigators the impression that, after Beth was dead, the killer stayed and smoked, possibly to steady their nerves. Something to note here. The cigarettes were actually from two different brands. While not all smokers are brand loyal, people do tend to smoke from the same pack, 
until it's done rather than flip between them. So it does stand out to me that there were two brands of cigarettes supposedly smoked by one killer. Also in the bathroom were bloody paper towels. Drops of blood let out the back door, blood that was collected as there was a chance this was not Beth's blood. It's not uncommon for someone to cut themselves during a stabbing. When Don and Ian talked to the police that day, they told the police about how Fergus and Vivian had a violent fight over his relationship with Beth and that both Vivian and the farm truck were missing. So here we are at the murder scene, and within a very short amount of time, a suspect has emerged. One of Beth's neighbors said she had woken up to use the bathroom overnight and heard a truck drive past. This is a quiet road with only a few houses, so cars going past wasn't something they would hear typically that late at night. There have also been reports that they have a witness who saw a land cruiser at Beth's around 3.30 a.m. This was 30 minutes after Vivian asked Robin to come pick up her children. So finding Vivian and finding that land cruiser became a pretty big focus. The truck was found later that day, which seems like a quick development. However, the official story has this truck out in plain sight all day and no one saw it. So that is a little odd. It ended up being Fergus's brother, Don's wife, Pam, who found it. She was driving home from work between 4 and 5 p.m. when she passed a spot near the San Remo Bridge. She saw the truck pulled over, so she made a U-turn and pulled up to it. Pam had been in touch with the family off and on throughout the workday, getting updates on what was going on, so she knew they were looking for Vivian and they were looking for the truck. But when she saw it, Pam first thought about how when she ran errands at lunchtime, she had seen police in the area. So now seeing the truck, her first thought is, okay, the police pulled Vivian over and the truck was left there while Vivian was taken in. Pam checked out the truck and found that it was unlocked with the keys in the ignition and Vivian's handbag in plain sight on the seat. Thinking that the police had just left it like that, she took the handbag and the keys, locked the truck up, and drove back to work. She was closer to work than she was to home, and she wanted to call her husband, Don, to find out what was going on. Pam went back to the truck, took other valuables from the vehicle before she then drove home. She said she noticed there was a black-handled knife on the floor on the passenger side. She knew it was a knife from Fergus and Vivian's house since she and Don owned the same brand. It was clean, though. The knife didn't have blood on it or anything. But the thing is, the police had not found the truck. They hadn't pulled Vivian over. Pam finding the truck and contacting the police about it was the first they heard of it. Her assumption was incorrect. The police went out to secure and search the vehicle, even though Pam had already taken things from it. In the truck, they found a washcloth that was covered in blood. I mentioned before that it was odd no one had spotted the truck in plain sight. It was very close to the bridge, which is the one way on and off the island. So the investigators coming to the island that morning and then going back to the mainland later 
would have passed it if it was there earlier. So that brings up the question of when it was parked there. The earliest possible sighting was around 5 a.m. when a man drove by and saw a vehicle parked in that spot. He couldn't say that it was the truck. He just remembered some vehicle was parked there. Since there are public restrooms near that spot, he assumed someone pulled over to use the bathroom. The only reason he even noticed this vehicle was that it was somewhere he didn't normally see a car parked that early in the morning. So if the vehicle there at 5 a.m. was the farm truck, then the police had passed it and never noticed. The earliest sighting of the vehicle where the witness is saying, yes, that is the vehicle I saw, was more like 3 p.m., which would have been an hour or two before Pam drove by. So an early theory was emerging, one that would actually see us through the rest of the investigation. And here it is. Vivian called her friend to take the boys. She then went to Beth's house in the Land Cruiser, killed her, and then drove to the spot near the bridge. From there, one of two things happened. One, Vivian parked the truck and jumped off the San Remo Bridge to her death. Or two, Vivian parked the truck and then got on a bus at a nearby bus stop, and she was on the run. Both theories have the same issue. They have no proof. The bridge was searched for any signs of where Vivian may have jumped from. There were no signs of any disturbance. The rail had a light coating of salt from the water, and it was uninterrupted. The divers searched the water for Vivian or even a sign of her, like a scrap of clothing, a shoe, her glasses. Nothing was found. And then there is another factor about this bridge. It's not that high. There are no recorded instances of anyone completing suicide from that bridge. There's really no reason Vivian would have believed it was a good plan. And as for getting on a bus and taking off somewhere, they couldn't find any evidence Vivian did board a bus that day, and she never made contact with anyone. And there is another issue with the sequence of events that came out when the murder of Beth and the hunt for Vivian hit the news. One of Vivian's friends, named Glenda, said she had spoken to Vivian on the phone on the morning Beth's body was discovered. And she spoke to her mid-morning, around 10 a.m. She said the call was incredibly routine. Vivian talked about buying something to make a gift for someone else. Vivian didn't sound upset, disturbed, in a rush, nothing like that. But Glenda could tell that Vivian wasn't alone when she called because there were voices in the background. She assumed they were Vivian's sons, but we know they weren't. One was at school and the other was with Fergus's family at that point. And Vivian was supposed to be at work that morning. There is no solid proof she made it there, though there's a coworker who saw an entry indicating she was. So was that where Vivian called her friend from work and those were the voices she heard? That's possible, but the investigators are split on if this phone call, one, happened, 
and two was really Vivian. They asked Glenda if she was sure it was Tuesday, sure it was 10 a.m., sure this was Vivian. And Glenda said yes on all counts because she had a friend over at the time. Her friend backed her up that it was mid-morning on Tuesday that Vivian had called. And Glenda knew it was Vivian and not someone imitating her voice because Vivian talked to her about something they had discussed before, something someone else wouldn't really know about that very specific thing. This was a local call on a landline, so there were no phone records to pull. Back in the olden days, the only calls that would be logged were ones that also needed to be billed, like long distance or collect calls. If the details of this call are accurate, an hour after Beth's body was found, Vivian was unaware her husband's family thought she was missing. She was making routine phone calls and going about her day. And that stands out to me, because if that's the case, why didn't she contact anyone about what to do with the boys? Why didn't she tell Fergus, oh, by the way, the boys are with Robin? Why didn't she take the family car like she normally would do? Why did she take this truck, which is very clearly a farm truck, to go wherever she went? My only theory on this is that this call wasn't routine. If Vivian had killed Beth, perhaps she still thought at that point that maybe she could get away with it. So she tried to go about her normal day. But because she was so shaken and worried and anxious about what had happened, she dropped the ball on some things like picking up the kids or letting someone know where they were. Other than that, I can't really fit this call or even the possibility Vivian went to work that morning into any theory of the crime or her disappearance, whether she was the killer or not. But let's get back to the official version. I said I was saving the analysis for the end, but sometimes I just can't help myself. Because a lot of this official story comes from Fergus Cameron's recollections of private conversations, it is important that we now go over what he had to say about all of this. Fergus's full interview with the police was two days after the murder. He told the story about his relationship with Beth and how it progressed, the issues with his marriage, the incident with the wine glass, and he said the incident with the wine glass was not the only time Vivian had become violent towards him as their marriage fell apart but he hadn't called the police about it or needed medical treatment in the past. He only sought medical treatment this time because Vivian insisted. Fergus also said that Vivian made a comment on the way to the hospital that she was going to get Beth, but then said she didn't mean it and he assumed she was just venting. Being the last one to see Beth alive and one of the last ones to see Vivian, the police really wanted to know all about his interactions with each. With Beth, Fergus said he went to see her Monday night, but she wasn't feeling well. He stayed about an hour. They did not have sex. And when he left, he reminded her to lock her doors because when he had gotten there, they were unlocked. With Vivian, Fergus said they talked after getting back from the hospital after Marnie left. They agreed to the divorce. Vivian wanted Fergus to have custody and all of that. This idea of leaving her kids with Fergus seemed so against what Vivian would have normally said or thought. 
She was a devoted mother. She tried so hard to save her marriage, and hours before, she was in such a rage over it that she stabbed Fergus in the back with a wine glass. And now suddenly, she's ready to just give him everything, including the children, so he can lead his best life while she moves back home with her parents with nothing. This is just one of those points that stands out to me because it doesn't really fit. That said, it is possible Vivian was just at a very low point in that moment. And that's what she said in that moment. The next day, she may have regained her senses, especially as far as custody went. It's also possible she didn't say it quite the way Fergus remembered it. Fergus told the investigators that after his conversation with Vivian about the details of their divorce, she drove him to Marnie's house. Marnie said she saw Vivian when Fergus was dropped off, making her and Fergus the last two people known to have seen Vivian before she disappeared. She then spoke to Robin on the phone at about 3 a.m., and she may have spoken to Glenda at 10 a.m. Fergus was asked if he defended himself against Vivian the night they had that fight, and he said he didn't hit her and she wasn't injured. While that wasn't exactly what he was asked, it was what the police were getting at, I'm sure. The forensics, however, would bring this answer into question. This was pre-DNA testing, but blood typing was done at the time, and then DNA testing was later done in 1995. Fergus and Beth both had type O blood, but they had different enzyme markers. I tried to look it up, but I did not understand it, to be completely honest with you. All that matters is that simple blood tests couldn't tell the difference between their blood, but sometimes more detailed ones could. Vivian's blood type, according to her medical records, was type A. In the Cameron home, type A blood was found in the spare bedroom and on items in the laundry, and not a small amount. Blood from the spare room the police had first assumed was Fergus's from being stabbed with the wine glass. That actually turned out to be Vivian's. In spite of Fergus saying, Vivian had not been injured that night, and no one reported seeing any injury. Fergus's blood was found on his shirt and on some tissue paper left in the bathroom. And then there was a sweater of Vivian's found behind the door of that spare bedroom, and Fergus's and Vivian's blood were both on it. Not all of the blood on Fergus's shirt could be subtyped, so it was type O, but it's not clear if it was definitely his. But since the cuts on Fergus's bloody shirt aligned with his injuries, I think we can assume that at least most of it, if not all of it, was his. In the family sedan, a small amount of blood was found on the passenger side, but it was unable to be typed. It's been verified that Vivian drove Fergus to the emergency department at the hospital, so it's very likely it's Fergus's blood. In the Land Cruiser, the washcloth found had type A blood on it, which was Vivian's blood, not Beth's. Okay, so we're going to jump the timeline just a little bit so we can go over the DNA evidence for a second. It just makes more sense to tell you what we know. 
It wasn't tested in 1986, like I said, but it was tested in 1995. The testing found Vivian's blood was on the bloody knife left at the scene. It was also on a towel found in Beth's bathroom. It seems to put Vivian at the scene, except here's the thing. Vivian's blood wasn't found on Beth's body at all, even though it appears the killer smeared their hands on Beth. And none of Beth's blood was found on that towel in the bathroom. So this would mean that Vivian washed all of Beth's blood off of her hands, but had a bleeding wound of her own and only left that blood on the towel. It's possible for sure, but it seems that absolutely no blood transfer from Beth to that towel happened. That seems unlikely. One of the cigarette butts at Beth's house did have Vivian's DNA on it, and it was from Vivian's preferred brand but it didn't have any blood on it. So Vivian killed Beth in a bloody way, apparently was bleeding herself, and then smoked a cigarette at the scene without getting any blood on it. Now, those drops of blood leading away from the house, they were initially typed as type A and later confirmed through DNA to be Vivian's. It wasn't reported until many years later that Beth's blood was actually found on two sheets of paper, on a bed, in a house on the island that wasn't hers. Some sources say that the actual specific location cannot be disclosed because it's been suppressed by the courts. But other sources say that the papers were in Fergus and Vivian's home, in that same spare room where Vivian's blood was also found. So, If I wasn't supposed to say that, I'm sorry, Your Honor, Majesty, Lord. I I don't know what Australian judges are called. Whatever it is, your secrets were on the internet, and here we are. But this piece of information is really important here because we have Vivian's blood at Beth's house, and we have both Beth and Vivian's blood at Vivian's house in the same room. If Vivian killed Beth, she had to have gone home before her disappearance. That's also backed up by Vivian's purse. Robin saw it in the house when she picked the boys up, but Pam found it in the truck. Searches for Vivian Cameron have been unsuccessful for going on 35 years now. A coronial inquiry was held for Beth in August 1987, and the coroner found that Beth was murdered and Vivian contributed to her death. A coroner does not have the power to proclaim someone guilty of murder. That's for a court to decide. So contributed to her death is as close as the coroner can get to implicating Vivian in the crime. Eleven months later, in July 1988, an inquiry was held for Vivian. Though those normally take seven years to occur when someone is missing, Vivian was declared dead, and the coroner found she had jumped off the bridge. The reason this occurred earlier than usual appears to have something to do with settling her estate. She was a shareholder in a business with Fergus, and they needed to move forward on some business stuff. So that is more or less the official story and the bulk of the evidence. Vivian Cameron, in a fit of rage and jealousy, killed Beth Barnard and then took her own life. 
So now we're going to look at the story and attempt to approach this critically. Critical thinking is often confused with being a skeptic, but that's actually just being biased in the other direction. Critical thinking means you're open to all of the information and you are asking why and what else and not just looking for the parts that fit or don't fit. We're looking at the whole. So we are keeping our minds just as open to the official theory as we are to anything else. So let's go ahead and just bullet point this and take it one piece at a time. A lot of the Cameron family's story has to do with who called whom and when they called and what was said. And their memories do not always line up. Even the timeline of leaving where they lived to go to Beth's and then going to the police station, their timeline is way off. They would have done all of that in something like 10 minutes, but it would have taken 30 minutes at a minimum to do it. And that's if they only stayed at Beth's house long enough to walk in and walk right back out. So that's one of the first things that stood out to me, but it's not a huge deal because I don't imagine they were sitting there looking at their clocks. And since there were multiple phone calls back and forth practically all day long, I can imagine it's hard to remember what was said in which conversation and who was the one who dialed the phone. But something that does stick out to me a little bit more are the circumstances of Vivian's death. No trace of her was found in the water, which isn't impossible to have happened, but somewhat unlikely. And why wouldn't she have done something more likely to have surely caused her death, not take a gamble with a bridge that really wasn't all that high? And the blood evidence seems odd. If Vivian killed Beth, why didn't any of Beth's blood transfer to the Land Cruiser? None of it was there. The scene was way too bloody for the murderer to get away without some kind of transfer. We are talking about forensic countermeasures here, like bringing a change of clothes, possibly wearing gloves, and yet no evidence of that was found. Where and when would Vivian have gotten rid of all of these things in a way that didn't also bring blood into the Land Rover? And when did Vivian bleed in the spare room? And when did Beth's blood get on the papers there? Because here's the point with that. Marnie said, when she was there after Fergus was hurt, but before Beth was supposedly killed, she saw that blood in the spare room. She probably assumed it was Fergus's, but it turned out to be Vivian's. So how did it all get there hours before it should have been there, according to the official timeline? And Marnie also said she saw a bloody towel and washcloth in the laundry that were not found by the police. A towel with Vivian's blood was found in Beth's home, and a washcloth was found in the Land Cruiser. Were these the same ones Marnie had found? And why would Vivian bleed on these items and then take them with her anywhere? And if they're not the same items Marnie saw, then what happened to the ones she did see? I think the part that stands out the most, though, is the paper with Beth's blood on it. Allegedly, Marnie saw these papers on the bed when she was at the home. And I'm just going to say allegedly here because this information isn't widely reported on, possibly because it's not supposed to be, or it wasn't and now it is. I don't know, but like the specifics of this information really have not been widely reported. But this paper, if it was on that bed hours before Beth was supposedly killed, how did Beth's blood get on it? 
if it was from Vivian going back to the house and transferring the blood, then why didn't she transfer any of Beth's blood in the Land Cruiser? Now, I do think it is possible Marnie is misremembering the paper specifically, if that is part of the official story. But I kind of doubt she misremembered the rest of the blood in the room. And of course, we have the 10 a.m. phone call possibly placed from Vivian's work. I don't want to dismiss the phone call just because it doesn't make sense, especially since there was a witness to it. But if this phone call happened, there's something more to it. It served a purpose somehow. It set a narrative. It established an alibi. Now, what purpose and alibi those would be are just speculation, so feel free to speculate. Another question raised here was the motive. According to Fergus, Vivian was incredibly angry that night, mostly at him. She made a comment about getting Beth, but then she had hours to calm down. And according to Fergus, she did. Vivian was calm, and the decision to divorce had been made at the time she dropped him off at his sister's. Based on things Vivian said when she did suspect the affair was happening, she put the blame on Fergus, even saying to one person, if it hadn't been with Beth, it would have been with someone else. Under these circumstances, I would have expected Fergus to be the one to end up dead. There's also what she said about leaving her boys. Before the murder, Vivian had told a co-worker she was taking the boys to Melbourne with her. Fergus's brother-in-law was told Vivian and the boys were going to Melbourne. He even filled up her car for her so she could take that trip. So it was planned for her to go to Melbourne with the boys, yet told Fergus she was suddenly leaving them behind. There were also other suspects besides Vivian, and it doesn't seem entirely clear how closely they were looked into. One was a young man who had strong feelings for Beth, and she found him a bit too much. She turned him down, though he continued to pursue her. He regularly left flowers on her porch, and sometimes she would see him just waiting outside her house. He would show up and randomly mow her lawn for her. I think the best way to put it is that Beth was amused yet annoyed by his attention at first, but then she finally had enough after it moved into what was honestly stalking behavior. She told him to leave her alone, and he didn't. That's stalking. The last time he mowed her lawn, Beth yelled at him. She told a friend he was clearly annoyed when he left. He has not been named a suspect, person of interest, and the police have never made his name public. So we'll just call him, I don't know, Mr. Stocks. So Mr. Stocks called one of Beth's friends the day after the murder. And he asked if she had spoken to the police yet. She had not, but she anticipated that it would happen soon since she was Beth's best friend on the island and she had recently seen her. Mr. Stocks asked her not to talk to the police, and she told him she was going to do whatever she could to find Beth's killer. Whether Mr. Stocks was involved in what happened to Beth or not, I can see why he wouldn't want his stalking behavior revealed to the police. That would land him pretty high on the suspect list. The police have said that they cleared him, but it's not clear exactly how he was eliminated as a suspect. 
he did move off the island soon after Beth's murder. Personally, I think it's very unlikely he was involved because if this was anyone except Vivian, they planted evidence. They planted Vivian's blood at the scene, a cigarette with her DNA, and a knife that had her blood on the handle. They then dumped the Land Cruiser without anyone noticing, as well as getting rid of Vivian to frame her for the crime. How would this lawn-mowing stalker have the access to Vivian or her blood necessary to frame her, or even the motive to kill a second person to cover up the first crime, particularly killing Vivian? It would be pure conjecture if I started naming people who would have a motive to kill both Beth and Vivian, and I can't even do that with any confidence because no one or even a group of people fit the circumstances any better than Vivian does. All of the same holes in the case against Vivian exist for everyone else, and in some cases, they're even bigger holes. It's not like Beth's blood was found on anyone else or in their cars or their blood and DNA was found at the scene. The level of conspiracy to clear Vivian from this crime requires more speculation than I think we have the evidence for. There's also a third option that Vivian killed Beth and then someone killed her, which would require even more speculation. I've never before created an episode where I mostly just asked questions, but there's a first time for everything. This case, in my view, remains unresolved. There are just too many holes in the official story and too many holes in the unofficial stories for us to really know what happened that night. And that night, we need to remember, through all the mystery and intrigue and conspiracies and speculation, cost a 23-year-old woman her life. And as for Vivian, a murderer or not, on the run or not, left behind two little boys who adored her and a family who continues to grieve her loss. Regardless, the solution to this mystery, the tragedy remains the same, and so does the scope of it. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Crimelines is also on YouTube, where I post two to three true crime videos a week, including an occasional after show where we go over any visuals from that week's podcast episode. Crimelines is also on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. And if you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an occasionally funny history, mystery, and true crime podcast that I co-created and write for.